0: Well, good evening, everyone. We're glad you're here tonight. Thank you for coming. All right, we come to our seventh study tonight in how to study and interpret the Bible. And before we begin our journey this evening, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for people who care enough about it to want to be part of a study like this where we analyze things in regard to it. And our goal, Lord, in life is to really grasp truth. That's what we're after. And I pray that the tools that we can gain from a study like this will help us accomplish that, and we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we come to our eighth question that we're going to ask tonight, and that is the false ways. What are the false ways and systems that people use when they approach the Bible or they try to interpret the Bible? As we mentioned earlier in this study, the Bible is probably the most butchered book in the world. Almost every person who owns a Bible thinks that he is in some position to interpret it, and they are in some respects, depending on what the qualifications are and if they're meeting those qualifications, but most assume what they think about the Bible is right. The problem is there are many systems that are used in many ways the Bible can be interpretive that are actually counterproductive to understanding exactly what the Bible does say. Some pick up a Bible and say, well, it teaches Arminianism, you can lose your salvation. And others pick up the same Bible and say, no, it doesn't, it teaches Calvinism, you are forever saved, eternally saved. Some pick up a Bible and say it teaches premillennialism, Jesus Christ will return before the millennium. Some say it teaches postmillennialism, he'll come back after the millennium. Some say it teaches amillennialism, there is no millennium. And those who take their positions or hold to those positions use their proof text, and they have some system of interpretation that they're following to arrive at that conclusion. Now, as we mentioned in our uh, prayer tonight, we are after truth. That's what we are after. We are after the truth of God. We're after a true interpretation of exactly what the Bible says and what the Bible means. And obviously, if you have a bunch of contradictory viewpoints, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. It's just that simple. It comes down to that. And usually, the matter is resolved in the system one uses as a method of interpretation. And when you look at the way people approach the Bible, there are about eight false ways, false systems of interpretation that are used. And the first one is called the allegorical system of interpretation, the allegorical system of interpretation. Now, this system of interpretation believes the Bible says one thing literally, but means something else figuratively. The Bible does not really literally mean what it literally says. That's the allegorical method of interpretation. The Bible is an inspired figurative book. It's filled with riddles. And everyone must try to study to unravel the hidden meanings and riddles. The allegorical system of interpretation has its roots in Greek philosophy. There was a Jewish philosopher whose name was Philo who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt, by the way. And I'm going to point this out tonight. You're certainly going to see it as a real... Key part of this allegorical approach to interpreting the Bible. But anyway, this guy lived in the first 50 years of the first century and he tried to come up with a system that would bridge the Bible and Greek philosophy. So he promoted allegorical interpretations of the Bible and he would make up things that really weren't in the text, but he would just say that that's what they really meant. And as a result of that, he took the position that there were deeper hidden meanings to everything in the Bible. He rejected a literal approach to the scriptures. For example, in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, I want you to go there, if you would. Revelation 20, 1 to 6, and I just want to start at verse 2 and just show you this from Revelation 20, verse 2. And here's what we read, and I want you to notice... This number shows up in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, six times in these verses. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been Headed because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Until the thousand years were completed, this is the first resurrection, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. Now, you read that, and you go, boy, oh boy, oh boy, there is a repetition there of six times of the number 1,000 years. Well, an allegorist looks at that, and they say, well, that's just some riddle number. I mean, we don't really know what it means, and we really don't know what it is. So they make up whatever they want it to mean. That's what an allegorist does with interpreting the Bible. And when, for example, in Revelation chapter 7 and verses 4 to 8, it says that there are 144,000 Jewish men singled out from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, and Alligrest says, well, that doesn't mean that literally. That's not what that means, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes from Israel. They name the tribes. That doesn't mean that literally. It's some figurative meeting for the church. You'll have people knock on your door that will actually come to your door and say it's referring to them. And yet it says very clearly it's referring to Israel and the 144,000 from 12 tribes. When the allegorist reads the dietary laws that are found in the Old Testament, they're not really literal dietary laws. That's their view. They really represent bad types of behavior associated with a particular animal. And on and on it goes for one who allegorizes the Bible. No wonder you can't come to understand the Bible if you approach it that way. Around the year 8100, there was a letter that showed up in a collection of apostolic fathers' writings called the Epistle of Barnabas. And by the way, many believe this was the Barnabas that Paul split from or split from Paul. And if it was him, he ended up with some really strange, doctrinal, quirky ideas. He interpreted all the dietary laws in Leviticus, with various immoral vices that he imaginatively associated with those animals. For example, he said the law against eating swine was actually a law that means don't associate with people who live like pigs. He said the law against eating a rabbit actually means stay away from people who are out there and they're promiscuous acting like rabbits. I mean, that's what he made up concerning those Levitical laws. The allegorical system is one of the oldest systems of interpretation in the history of the church. Clement of Alexandria believed that the scriptures are written in such a way that the true meaning is hidden. Now, one of the key historical places where this really came from is Alexandria, Egypt. And one of the key guys who really promoted this false system of interpreting the Bible was a guy by the name of Origen. He believed that all scripture was one vast allegory. He'd been born in Egypt, in Alexandria, Egypt. He was educated there, and he taught that you had three levels of interpretation to any biblical text. There was a flesh interpretation, a soul interpretation, a spirit interpretation. I don't even know what that means. He was strange. He was strange. The guy actually, when he was 17, he actually wanted to be martyred. I mean, this is the this kind of guy who's making up this uh, approach to the Bible. He wanted to be martyred. His mother, from what history tells us, talked him out of it. And the way she kept him from being martyred is she hid his clothes. He couldn't actually find clothes to put on to go out to be martyred. He was known for inventing some bizarre interpretations of passages of Scripture. For example, he taught that Noah's Ark story was a story that really is about the church, and Noah represents Christ. And then he taught when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, The donkey represented the Old Testament. The colt represented the New Testament. When you get to the parable of the Good Samaritan that is designed to combat Pharisaical religious concepts in Luke chapter 10. The man robbed represents Adam. The city of Jerusalem from where he came represents paradise. The city of Jericho where the man was headed represents the world. The priest who passed by and crossed the road and didn't help him represents the Old Testament law. The Levite who passed by represents the prophets. The Samaritan who came along and helped him represents Jesus Christ. The donkey that he was put on to take to wherever he was going to be helped represents Christ's physical body. The Wounds that the guy had on while lying there in the street represents the sins. The inn where he was carried to represents the church, and the Samaritan promise to return represents Christ's second coming. I mean, he just makes up stuff. He takes anything in the Bible and makes up stuff. And I'll explain a little later why he did it. I think there's a reason why he, he kind of went crazy in his approach to the Bible. Martin Luther, who prior to salvation, said, "I was an expert in allegories, totally denounced. This approach to interpreting the Bible after his salvation, he said that Origen's allegories are not worth so much dirt. And John Calvin said that those who interpret the Bible allegorically are torturing the scriptures in every possible sense from the true sense. Now, Augustine about the year 8400, right around in that realm, came up with a list of solid rules and guidelines for handling the scripture. One of them was the literal and historical meaning of the scripture should be held in high regard. And he stressed that the job of an interpreter of scripture was to determine the meaning of the scripture and not bring meaning to the scripture. You go to the scripture and you get the meaning from the text. But then later he got into allegorizing scriptures. For example, he taught the Four rivers that are flowing out of Eden, named in Genesis, are really four virtues. And then he got really strange. He said, when Noah got drunk, that really represents Christ and his suffering is death. Now, many people today allegorize the Bible in the way they interpret it. For example, when God promised Israel a land, and when God promised Israel a king and a kingdom, there are many people who say, he doesn't really mean that doesn't really mean he's going to give them a land, and it doesn't really mean he's going to come back and be a king, and they're going to have a righteous kingdom. It means something else. Now, obviously, you have some major problems if you approach the Bible, try to interpret the Bible allegorically. First of all, if God doesn't mean what he says, how can we ever know what he means or what to believe? I mean, if you're going to stick with your allegorical interpretation, if you have 150 or 200 passages that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved... If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved from your sins. If you take an allegorical approach, how do you know he means that? What if it doesn't mean that? I mean, how would you ever know if it doesn't mean what it says? Secondly, how do we know who has the correct interpretation if it's not based on the literal words? So you get some guy who comes along and he makes one view of a text, and another person comes along and he has another view of a text. I mean, how would you ever determine, well, who has the right view here? And thirdly, one person says a passage means one thing, someone else says another. How would one ever know truth based on an allegorical interpretation? I like what Robert Palmer said in his book, How to Understand the Bible. If the Bible does not mean what it says, there's no way we can know what it does mean. And that's so true. So there's your first false approach to the scriptures, the allegorical method of interpretation. Now, the second false system is the mystical or devotional system of interpretation. The mystical or devotional system of interpretation. This is another system of interpretation that's been around for a long time. This approach to the Bible came about as a reaction to cold, intellectual, dead religious orthodoxy that developed between the years A.D. 600 and A.D. 1500, and this is a system of interpretation that says it really doesn't matter what the Bible says or means, As long as it touches your heart and speaks to your heart, as long as it gives you a warm feeling, as long as you have some type of experience that seems to really touch your emotions. So it really doesn't matter what it means. There's no need to be precise in your grasp of scriptures. There's no need for precision in analyzing passages. There's no need of precision in doctrine as long as it warms your heart and touches your heart. Now, this system of interpretation believes that people can get direct knowledge from God through their experiences and feelings. They actually believe that, that this is the way you get real knowledge from God through your experiences and feelings. The problem with experiences and feelings is they often lie. In fact, this system of interpretation rejects the objective analysis of scripture and elevates the subjective analysis of scripture. I've actually been in conversations with people who hold to this position and they're going on about an experience and i said well your experience doesn't square with the scriptures well but i've experienced it and they'll say what about this happened to me i, I don't know i can't explain it i don't know if you're even telling me the truth about what happened to you or what you think happened because i wasn't there and i don't know but what i can tell you is what you're saying doesn't square with the word of god that i do know And so whatever your experience was, or whatever you're feeling, or whatever you're going through, it doesn't stack up to the scriptures. And this kind of approach, this mystical or devotional system, basically says you don't need to worry about the words of a text, you don't need to worry about grammar, you don't need to worry about syntax, you don't need to worry about doctrinal differences, because the important thing is the Bible just speaks to your heart and you feel good about it. That's the devotional, mystical approach to the Bible. But there are a lot of problems with that, and that is, first of all, God did not give his word to warm hearts. He gave his word to transform minds. He gave his word to develop sound minds. That was the reason why he gave his word. Secondly, a heart that's truly rightly warmed and one that's right with God means one is after an accurate understanding of the written word. And quite honestly, people who hold to a mystical devotional system of interpretation actually believe that God reveals things beyond the written scriptures. So they're actually adding to it. They're saying, my experience trumps the written scriptures. Thirdly, when God challenges his people to accurately handle the scriptures so that one is unashamed, study to rightly divide and accurately handle the scriptures so you'll be a workman who's unashamed, then it would seem that the focus of God is not on the emotional, it's on exegesis. Go to the text and draw out what the text is saying. And fourthly, without a proper accurate grasp of God's word, there will never be a proper development of emotions. Emotions tend to be all over the map. I mean, emotions are emotional and irrational and sensational. And if they're not in line with scriptures, they're not biblical. And that's the key, line up the emotions with the scriptures. And oftentimes, what you feel like doing or believing is just the opposite of the scriptures. And like Mr. Miles used to teach us, if you will decide to obey the scriptures, what you'll discover is the feelings will ultimately line up with the scriptures. You don't want to just go off by your feelings, go by the scriptures. And then the feelings will line right up with that. So that's the mystical and devotional system. Now, a third false system is the liberal or rationalistic system of interpretation. The liberal or rationalistic system system of interpretation. In the late 1800s, what was called the scientific age began in Europe, and by the 1900s, it had spread to the United States. Men began to discover things and invent things, and they became proud of these intellectual accomplishments and achievements. Very rarely would those men give the glory to God. God's the one who gave them the skills God's the one who gave them the ability to search out and discover and invent witty things. God's the one who gave them the ability to do that, but they left God out of the equation and they didn't glorify God, they glorified self. So there was a pride that began to seep into religion and it began to seep into people when they picked up a Bible. They began to approach it from a real intellectual, rational way and they would only accept and believe the Bible if their minds could rationally figure it out and explain it. So when they would read something like the Nile River was turned into blood, because they can't figure that out. I mean, that is a miracle of God. Well, they would say, well, that's not what it really means. It doesn't really mean that. It means that there was a reddish silt color that happened to flow into the water. It made it look reddish. But it really wasn't blood because man's mind was saying we're the judge of what God's word says and therefore we don't accept that. When the text says that the Red Sea was parted and the people walked across the Red Sea, the nation Israel walked across the Red Sea, well, it really doesn't mean that that was parted. It means that the water level went down to a shallow level and they could just kind of wade across it like they were walking across a mud puddle. I mean, that's how a rationalist thinks. That's how a liberal thinks. Actually, that's not a new system to the late 1800s because Thomas Hobbes in the 15 to 1600s who was an English philosopher taught the Bible was only true if man's mind could reason it, and if man's mind can't reason it, then you reject it. And Baruch Spinoza in the 1600s who was a Dutch Jewish philosopher, he taught the same thing. He taught that human reason was totally separate from biblical theology. Now, in the liberal or rational method of Bible interpretation, the words of the Bible are not the authority. Man's mind becomes the authority. The Bible can only be accepted and believed as long as it does not violate human reason or logic. And this kind of approach to the scripture totally rejects the supernatural. It totally rejects what God is capable of doing. It picks and chooses what it even considers to be significant in the scriptures. And if it happens to be something that goes beyond what man's mind can grasp or what man's mind can prove, then it just rejects it. Now this system of interpretation has a lot of false views. First of all, there's no such things as miracles because miracles go beyond the boundaries of a man's mind or reason. And here's a great liberal interpretation to a very famous story. They look at the story where there was this feeding of the 5,000 where this boy lent the Lord Jesus his lunch and they look at that and they say, well, that really didn't happen. What that story is about is it's a story about a guy who shared his lunch with others, and when the other people saw this young guy sharing his lunch with others, then they decided to share theirs too, so about 5,000 people ended up being fed. So they deny it was a real miracle of Jesus. That's what a rationalist liberal does. The Bible is a history book, not an inspired book. Man is basically good. If you give him a good education, he'll turn out just fine. And when the Bible says something that you don't agree with, or the Bible says something you can't understand or you can't seem to fathom in your own mind, then just reject it. You don't believe in depravity. The man is totally depraved and born dead in trespasses and sin. You don't believe in sin. You don't believe in hell. Now, there are obviously a lot of fallacies to this method of interpreting the Bible from a liberal perspective. First of all, man's reason becomes superior to God's written revelation. And that's really it. Man's reason becomes superior to God's written revelation. So Darwin's theory of evolution is better than the Bible. Well, the Bible says this, but here's Darwin... He's come up with this theory, so we'll just set that. A day in Genesis in the creation story can't be a literal 24-hour day because we've figured out that the earth is billions of years old and the math doesn't work. See, this is the way a rationalist views the scriptures. Their mind becomes the authority for what they believe. Man's reason is the authority for what we believe and do, not the word of God. And man must determine which parts of the Bible are acceptable and which aren't. So there's your third false system of interpretation, the liberal or rationalistic system. A fourth false system is the neo-orthodox or existential system of interpretation. In the early 1900s, liberal and fundamental clashes occurred concerning the Bible. World War I proved that man was not good. Man couldn't solve world problems. And when the Great Depression hit, it proved that man could not solve economic problems either and that liberalism could not give any answers or solutions. So there was a huge gap between liberals and fundamentalists who did believe the Bible. And some new system of religion or way of approaching the Bible was developed. It was called neo-orthodoxy. Now, neo-orthodoxy taught that the Bible is not inspired word of God by the words written, but it becomes the word of God when a person by faith experiences it. And quite honestly, I've looked at and read quite a few pages on this topic of neo-orthodoxy, and I can't quite fathom, I can't quite grasp it in my mind. The Bible is the word of God when you experience it. When the Bible touches your heart, then it becomes the word of God to you. It isn't just the objective word of God. In fact, that's the problem. There's no need to worry about words. There's no need to worry about sentences or doctrine. But whether or not it touches your heart, that's the main thing. It just touches your heart. And this is what makes God's word God's word to you. This system rejects the objective and elevates the subjective. And that's the problem with this. It rejects the objective. It elevates the subjective. And there are a lot of problems with this. First of all, it denies the Bible is inerrant. That is, it's without error. It denies the Bible's infallible, incapable of error. And when the Bible touches someone's heart, it's the word of God. Things can be interpreted as myths. I mean, you can basically say, we don't believe in creation. We don't believe in the fall of man. We don't believe in the resurrection. These are myths. It's not important whether or not it's true or not. This is the way this is approached in neo-orthodoxy. It's not important whether it's really true or not. What's important is that you experience something. There is a... Fifth fault system that comes out is called the ecclesiastical system of interpretation. The ecclesiastical system of interpretation. The ecclesiastical system of interpretation is a system that says it doesn't matter what the words of the Bible actually say. What really matters is what the church says. The church is the authority, not the Bible. And this position says there are some things that are more important than other things, and our church now is the authority for what we believe and what we think. This system of interpretation is prevalent among many people today in many different denominations. The Roman Catholic Church is known for its emphasis on the church's ability to give the true interpretation. They're the ones in the position to give the true interpretation. Church teachings and church traditions are far more important than God's word. Back in 1925, there was a Catholic writer whose name was Andrea Fernandez. He invented what he called the census planer, and that means fuller sense or deeper meaning, and the Catholic Church took the position that to get the true interpretation of the Bible, there must be an authoritative guide, which had to be a Roman church official. They became the guide to all kinds of distortions of gods where they invented things that weren't even in the Bible. This has happened in the Reformed and Christian Reformed churches. There are those who are guilty of exactly the same kind of thing. They become the authority base for a lot of things trying to convince people they should believe this when the Bible says otherwise. They try to put people back under the Old Testament law. They try to make people feel bad if they're not following the Old Testament law and if they're not even reciting the Lord's Prayer. I mean, they program people to think this way. They read the commandments, regardless of what a book like Galatians or Romans teaches. Galatians or Romans teaches we're set free from the law. They try to keep people under the law. They won't even call Sunday the Lord's Day. They call it the Sabbath day. And they try to convince people to do the same thing. I mean, they become the authority. It isn't the Word of God. It isn't the Word of God that's the authority. It's the denomination that becomes the authority. That's what the ecclesiastical system does. There are Baptist churches that do exactly the same thing. They become the authority for all kinds of things, from versions of the Bible to what people can and cannot do. I mean, they become the real authority here. There are a lot of Southern Baptist people. I mean, it's King James only. They don't even know the arguments. I've told you this story before. There was one of these guys, he wrote books on this subject in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He wrote books on the King James Bible. He took an NIV Bible in the pulpit, put it in an offering plate, and set it on fire in church. And basically saying that the only Bible is the King James Bible. Well, he comes into Kriegel one day, and by this time I was getting along in some studies, and I knew my way around a little bit in some of the languages. And so I said to this man who had written these books and done this, I said to him, look, have you ever personally gone to a text in, for example, the Greek text, and looked at it, and looked at a translation in your King James Bible, and looked at it in the New American Standard, and determined why the difference? Well, I know the King, I said, no, answer my question, answer my question. Have you ever personally gone to a Greek text and analyzed why does there appear to be a little difference here? Have you done that? Well, no. So you're traveling around churches, brainwashing people, getting them to believe something, and you don't even know what you're talking about. And then they base their view on the Texas receptus which is a it's a good Greek text. The Texas receptus was a Greek text that it was good when it was there. It's not the oldest group of manuscripts, but it's a good manuscript. Then the UBS text, they had older manuscripts that they compiled. And so I took the guy to a Texas Receptus and I said, now here's the Texas Receptus that you reverence because the King James is based on this. So here's a verse here. How come they leave out this word? And the guy is going from place to place, convincing people that they could only read the King James Bible. He doesn't even know what the arguments are. See, this is the ecclesiastical system of interpretation, where the church becomes the dominant authority. The people sitting up you don't know what to believe. I mean, they just think the guy's up there and he must have a handle on this stuff and he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And there are other times when Baptist churches have done that. Another example is their view of baptism. They'll go to Romans 6, and they'll go to Colossians 2, and they'll use that as a basis to promote water baptism. Water baptism isn't even in there. It's spirit baptism that's in there. But that's what they do. My illustration here is designed to say the church is not the authority for what we believe the text is. The Word of God is. So the church is just a system that hopefully is accurately and communicating the truth. That is their responsibility. But the church's job is not to just be the catch-all interpretation for everything there. I mean, it's the responsibility to carefully analyze the scriptures to come to a true interpretation. But the ecclesiastical system of interpretation thinks otherwise. Now, there's a sixth system that's false. It's the dogmatic system of interpretation. And the dogmatic system of interpretation basically goes something like this. I don't care what the words of the Bible say. I dogmatically believe what I believe, and I'm going to continue to believe it, and I'm not going to change my mind. Even if other passages contradict what I believe. I'm not going to change my mind. The moment a person thinks like that, they're shutting down the Holy Spirit from developing them any further because you're basically just shutting off truth. And what happens in the dogmatic system of interpretation is that the system of interpretation becomes more important than the actual words of the text. And in this method of interpretation, a person has his own beliefs. Then he goes to the Bible to find verses that seem to support their beliefs as crazy as they may be. This method of interpretation uses isolated verses as proof text for what they believe. I mean... For example, one illustration that we can cite from the Roman Catholic world is in Matthew 16, where it says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the Catholic Church goes to that and tells people that refers to Peter, who's the first pope. And they dogmatically look at that and they say, there's our text right there. text isn't teaching that. Upon the rock of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church was going to be built, not on Peter, But yet they go to that and they use this as their proof text that this is Peter, who's the first pope, and this is going to be something that we're going to sell to religion for the rest of its existence. You've got those Jehovah's Witnesses. They go door to door. Knock on people's door. Tell them you can become part of the 144,000, that number that we referred to earlier, based on Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, and they dogmatically, dogmatically hold to this position. We had some, this was many years ago, come to our door, and I said, where would you get that number from? 144,000. They're standing on the porch. Where would you get the number from? From the Bible. I said, yeah, but where in the Bible? They didn't know. I said, I'll show you. So I opened up to Revelation 7. I said, now you read that. I gave them the Bible. You read that. Tell me, what does that say there, those 144,000 are? Well, it says it's 144,000. I said, read it. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and they named the tribes. I said, are you part of the tribes there? Well, no, no. Do you think that changed their minds? No way. They just went on to the next house. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in what a text says. They're dogmatic in their position. They're trying to sell this baloney to people in religion, and as a result of that, they are heading down a dead-end street. Well, the next one I'm going to need to take some time to talk about. So I think we're going to stop here because our time is long gone tonight. I want to thank you for coming. Drive careful. Good night. The Lord bless you.